Hi, this is Mike Livermore, and today I'm joined by Laura Candiotto, uh, who's a philosopher of emotion at the Institute of Philosophy of the Free University of Berlin uh, in Germany. Today, we're going to discuss her edited volume, The Value of Emotions for Knowledge, and other of her works, and discuss some of the links between the work that she's done on the philosophy of, of emotion uh, to the themes of intelligence and artificial intelligence in the ICA4. So thanks for Thank being with me much, today. Thank you very much, Yeah, it's a real pleasure yes, to chat I'm with you. I'm very happy. I'm very so, happy uh, to be here and sharing some thoughts with you. Thank you, Mike. Great. Well, yeah, no, it's a real pleasure. Well, there you go. We've already introduced emotion into the conversation because you said you were happy. Uh, so that's an emotion right there. And so... But one question as I was reading through uh, some of your material that came to mind is, you know, I have a folk understanding of what's meant by the term emotion, right? I think of fear or love, um, you know, those kind of canonical emotions. But in my experience, philosophers tend to uh, be somewhat more specific when they get into defining terms. And there may be uh, a way in which emotion is a term of art in your field uh, that I'm not familiar with. So. I guess just maybe to start us off is when we use the term emotion or when philosophers of emotion rather uh, use the term, what do they mean specifically? Thank you for asking this question because it is crucial. You, you are right. And as a beginning, I can say that uh, it is controversial. I, I am a philosopher of emotions and often with colleagues we say that we disagree about what emotions are. So maybe it is not mm -hmm. a very nice starting point, but as philosopher we think that this challenging of the difficulties of defining emotion is also very productive, generative. So, you know, this really enables us to address further question and going deep in, into the phenomenon. So I could say that uh, there are different theories and models about emotion. And the most prominent one nowadays is, of course, the cognitive theory of emotions, for which emotions are judgments. So we can take them as a cognitive state that possess a, um, a content, a propositional content that we could uh, express in a judgment. And uh, this judgment is usually an evaluation about something. So you, I can, with this judgment, I can appreciate the value or the, the relevance to me about an issue, uh, a thing. So for example, and this is the very basic uh, case we, we, we considered, so a dog is coming towards me, is approaching me, and I can say, oh, very well, this dog is so lovely. And I have this judgment that say, and it is an evaluation, we could say, right, that this dog is lovable. And this, of course, has to do with my personal history, because maybe I grew up with dogs or I really love human animals. And the person close to me say, oh, no, it is not true. This dog is very scary. So here we have another <laughs> assessment or evaluation. And the proposition is, well, the dog is scary. And this is really the emotion, so you, you, you can uh, see it. This uh, um, assessment ab about the 
intentional object, we call this in, in philosophy, mm -hmm. so the object in front of me that is uh, scary or lovable. Uh, but this view has been challenged very much. I can say that the, in contemporary philosophy, this is the, the mainstream view about, about emotions. But it has been challenged in many ways. And one is to say, well, it is too much to ascribe to emotions, this very um, peak concept of judgment and evaluation and thinking that emotion as an, an evaluative component and that can be expressed in proposition. And it seems that there are problems about the emotions of kids or non-human animals. So that this is only for very complex uh, uh, intelligent system, we, we could say. So other philosophers say, well, emotions are not as judgments, but they are perceptions. So that they are direct perceptions of values. So again, we can take this example of the dog that is coming towards me. And it is not that I build a proposition within my head, but I have a direct apprehension of this dog as lovable or fearful or or scary so in this way emotion are perception or are more like perception or intuitions also someone say but also this view for someone has been in, understood as too too cognitive in a way it seems that a, a, an important component of our folk understanding of emotion is missing here and is the idea that emotion has to do with the body with our feeling experience so that emotion are feelings how do i feel approaching this this dog how is my existential really re reaction also to to having this, this dog coming towards me. And so this is the third model, that is the feeling theory uh, model, or saying that emotions are embodied states. And this view has been developed in different ways, because I could also say that in philosophy, uh, this was also the more traditional one. So if we take Plato or Aristotle, but also Descartes, so the very classical uh, philosopher of Western philosophy, say that emotions are pathemata. Maybe you can hear this word that is come from Greek, has to do with pathos, pathein, mm -hmm. that is really mm -hmm. this, this feeling. But, you know, the problem is that in the traditional way of, of understanding emotion this way, these feelings are understood as irrational. So as something that uh, are opposed to rationality. And this seems to go really in contradiction to the contemporary results in cognitive science that say to us that emotions are part of cognition. So how is it possible that an irrational state play a fundamental role in our, in our cognition, in our cognitive system. So the embodied mm, feelings uh, theorists are developing a new way of understanding emotions as feelings, but not as irrational. So challenging this idea that emotions are irrational states opposed to rationality, but still keeping that they are embodied processes. And so in this view, there have been developed other view that say that emotion are active processes in our way of dealing with an environment. So emotion are actions 
or others says that emotions are motivations. And this, these two views are very, very close, that try to focus not very much on a state, cognitive state or embodied state, but more on a process, in a way to deal with the situation, on the how of the experience. So certain philosophy, and I quite share this view, say that uh, emotions are the how of the experience. So the how the experience is felt by me. I am a, a particular person with my existential commitment, interest, needs, and this how of the experience is the emotional dimension. Hmm. Maybe this as introduction. I don't know if I complicated too much. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the the picture or, or no? It's a wonderful. It's a wonderful way to start, and there is a lot in there to to unpack. And so the, I'm trying to just think what direction to take the conversation. There's so much. There's so much to think about. So a, cu a couple of a couple of just thoughts that that come immediately to mind as, as we have this kind of setup of these alternatives, the kind of cognitive theory. Um, the perceptive theory, the kind of traditional or the classical pathos theory, the theories that come out of cognitive science. One difference that, that strikes me um, is the kind of object orientation of emotions. So what do I mean by that, I guess, is in the cognitive theory, it seems pretty clear if we're talking about a proposition, right? The dog is uh, uh, risky or the dog is not risky, right? The dog is safe. Right. Those are propositions about the external environment. And so I'm wondering how well an approach like that to thinking about um, emotions and their and their content. For one thing, they have content, which is, you know, which is I don't doesn't strike me as necessarily the case. So one is they can be wrong. It seems like you could be wrong. And that strikes me as an odd thing that an emotion could be incorrect, that you could have an incorrect emotion. But maybe so that's maybe just one question just right off the bat is is the truth content of emotions is that a is that just a misapplication of the idea of having truth content um under these different theories um under all of the theories or are there some of the theories where we can think of emotions as having truth content um and other you know and other theories where like a perception perception you know you can misperceive things right that's that's you know you can have an illusion right you could see something incorrectly um and so if we think of emotions as perceptions and we could have misperceptions, if it's simply um, an internal state, right, the pathos thing, um, then that can't be wrong. It just is what it is, right? Like I, I, if I'm hungry, I'm not wrong to be hungry. It might not be an appropriate response to my situation or something like that, but it's not wrong to be hungry. <laughs> it strikes me as odd to say that. Um, but and then with the, the view that's coming out of that you're talking about that's coming out of cognitive science, thinking of emotions as a, as a kind of a process or a motivational force. Um, it's the how of the, it, 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 it's the subjective part of subjective experience or something along those lines. I'm wondering if, if that, if there's room for truth content there or, or are we more thinking that these are simply states of affairs that, that don't, that where the notion of being correct or incorrect doesn't, doesn't map well onto it. Yeah, you know, this has to do with the epistemology of emotions. So, uh, and again, for epistemologists, or at least mainstream epistemologists, thinking about emotions is very problematic because uh, it, we have many cases 
uh, in our daily life also, uh, where we can easily recognize that uh, we make mista mistakes driven by, by, by emotions. Mm -hmm. But, and this really mm -hmm. is, is important to, to know, but I think that this does not mean that under certain circumstances and situation, emotional really can uh, put us in the right direction, can really um, disclose in a particular way the, the truth of, of the situation. But, you know, you, you were speaking about the correctness and incorrect. So the example of the dog is risky and risky, etc. Usually in philosophy, we, th we think in terms of fittingness. So if the emotion fit the situation or not. But I think that uh, this view that can be very helpful has also uh, a problem embedded within. Namely, the idea that we have a subject that in a way is isolated from uh, the environment and then an object. And intentionality is just this way of relating the two and I can be wrong. And this has to do with the theory of truth as really this uh, from uh, Aquinas, right? This, this correspondentist, right. I think that in English is right. the way to say, uh, view about if it really represents true or not the reality. But if we take a view of emotions that is more active, that has more to do with a process of sense-making within an environment, we can take that the very same intentionality is affective. And so in dealing with a situation, I build the uh, condition for which this situation can be risky or unrisky. I'm speaking in an active terms here. So the idea that there is not an environment out there and a subject outside from it, like a spectator that need to evaluate, assess the situation, but an embodied and embedded subject that is living within this environment and is changing it, enacting it. And emotion are processes of making sense of this of this environment. But I know that this view is very specific and I want also to say, uh, to disclose another way for replying to, to your question that has to do, uh, that is more directly uh, related to mainstream epistemology. One thing that I to, to do is showing that emotions can direct the uh, subject to the truth if they are uh, part of epistemic virtues, if they are building blocks of epistemic virtues. So here I have in mind the um, virtue epistemology that uh, mm -hmm. is one mm -hmm. of the most established theory of, of knowledge in philosophy. And the idea is that uh, we can get to the true thanks to the ability or expertise of the subject. So the difference is really made by the skills and the virtues of the subject that can, in a process of inquiry, reach uh, the true in a reliable way. So uh, what I tried to do is showing that among these skills and abilities, we can have also affective abilities. But these abilities cannot just be left by themselves. They should be regulated by par 
patterns of virtues inquiries or virtues we could we could say so that they can really orient the subject to the truth and this has to do with the ethics of knowledge and uh, other other related topics that really uh, bring epistemology outside to the box of uh, uh, just uh, a representation of how the reality is but uh, the uh, that has more to do on the how uh, we social beings enact our knowledge in a social world and what are the norms that can regulate our um, epistemic practice i, I would Great. say so, so this is, this, again, this is also <laughs> so interesting to chat through. So, but let's take a, just a step back for folks who, um, you know, including me, aren't, aren't as familiar with, with some, of the, uh, some of the concepts that are on the table here. So let's start with epistemology. This is actually, not, I think, an unfamiliar term for, for many folks. And, and what um, uh, philosophers who are interested in uh, ep um, epistemology, what that field is all about. So maybe the, what's the thumbnail um, because I think what's what the move that's going to be interesting here, right, that we're going to talk about is mer that you've done in your work is merging um, this uh, line of inquiry and philosophy on epistemology with emotions, where which are not, at least on the traditional view, as I understand it, not an obvious fit. That's what's interesting about it. Right. So so just to take that step back, what is epistemology as a as a philosophical uh, subdiscipline? So epistemology is the theory of knowledge. So literally we can translate epistemology in this way. And the words came from the Greek word episteme, that means science, knowledge. So uh, epistemologists delivered the different theories of knowledge. And there are, uh, of course, different models, the ones that are more detached from the skills of the subject, I could say, and others as virtue epistemologists that really try to focus on the role of the epistemic, epistemic agents. And then there are different branches. So there is a very standard epistemology that usually is quite individualistic. So how a single epistemic agent can make sense of her world. But there is also uh, social epistemology, for example, that try to challenge this uh, individualistic stance of mainstream epistemology and try to understand the models of social knowledge and how people can make sense together. And then there is also the branch of feminist epistemologists that they are quite close to the social one, but they also want to understand the, um, the influence of gender, race and social status in the way we make sense of the world. And there is also a branch of epistemology that uh, really stick to the idea of truth and other that say, oh, well, we, we need also to understand uh, truth as uh, located in special context. So speaking in terms of plural truths, interpretation, but this goes more to the field of hermeneutics. Last things that I wanted to say is that uh, I say something about uh, virtue epistemology. And another field is very interesting is vice epistemology, because we have this tendency of thinking 
uh, in terms of knowledge as a positive things and thinking quite having this ideal view that agents just strive for the truth and strive for building knowledge. But when we really try to understand the real life situation, we see that our knowledge practices are filled of vices and ignorance mm -hmm. and delusion or ways of ignoring truth or denying truth. And so, well, also this is uh, another branch of epistemology. Right. <laughs> So, so that's that's super helpful to unpack. And then if we kind of go back to what what I take was what you were saying before, is you know if if, if we're going to take the the virtue epistemology view, right? Let's let's start within that kind of discourse, um, so that we're 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 being agent focused here. Although we might ask about the social conditions under which certain virtues are going to be more likely to form than others, but we're still taking a pretty agent focused orientation. And um, what you what you said earlier, I think, to just characterize it is that you know in the virtue um, epistemology framework, we're interested in the skills and abilities of the agent, and within those skills and abilities, emotions might have an important component. There might be these aren't necessarily, um, I don't know, pure skills and abilities in the sense that, you know, uh, a skill like playing basketball or playing the piano was a skill, right? But then there's kind of like, do you love playing the piano? And your skill at playing the piano is going to be very closely related to whether you enjoy playing the piano and whether the, the emotional experience of playing the piano. So, so maybe this is, is obvious. Um, this just strikes me as the perhaps most obvious version of this, but um, would curiosity then play the role that you're describing? Like, I don't know if, actually don't know if curiosity is an emotion or not. Um, so maybe that's a question, is curiosity an emotion? And if it is an emotion, is it the kind of emotion that you think is one that, um, you know, it, it fits into a virtue epistemology framework in the way that you're describing? <laughs> yes. So, well, I take curiosity to be an emotion, or at least a complex phenomenon which has a very strong emotional component. So we can also say, well, it is a complex phenomenon that has also other, other important parts, but the emotional one is quite important. And curiosity is, uh, for in, in my view, play a fundamental role in uh, regulating attention towards the epistemic ends. So, and we have a lot of studies in cognitive science that shows how curiosity really uh, build these uh, uh, patterns or of attention and uh, really can support uh, a process of, of, of inquiry. So I would say that if we take the um, Linda Zagzbeski view of intellectual virtues, who is one of the most prominent uh, scholars in virtue epistemology, she said that intellectual virtues or epistemic virtues, abilities, skills, are made of two components. One is the motivational component and the second is the success component. I would say that curiosity is a fundamental part of the motivational component. So it's it played really this uh, causal role of kindling and triggering interest on, 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 on something. And, and I think that this is fundamental. I think that the emotion do not play only a motivational component as curiosity, 
but they also play another role that has to do with the with responsibility. So I take emotion to play an important uh, role in moral judgments, in moral assessments. And so uh, if we really want to think of knowledge in terms of an ethics of knowledge, so how to build the correct, right and fair judgment that uh, really makes sense of the situation uh, that we are dealing with, and not only a situation, but with issues, with, with problems, we need a power, something that really boosts our responsibility for building these judgments. And I think that emotions as this power because really activate the agent. So again, we can say, well, they are motivation. Yes, I think that the motivational view about emotion is, is, quite, is, quite, is quite right. But why they are motivation? Not just in terms of this uh, causal force as curiosity that are be at the beginning of a process of inquiry just uh, uh, drive me into being interested in investigating this further, but also because they can make the agent more responsible towards the epistemic task. And in this way, and in this way, I take a developmental view of intellectual virtues. I think that emotion can support the training of uh, intellectual virtues. And so building what we call the intellectual character traits or the intellectual character. So becoming an agent that is capable of building um, true beliefs, uh, true and also right and, and, and fair belief. Great. This is, this takes us in so many different <laughs> interesting directions again. So, so, um, one of the little tidbits that I took away from, from some of what you've written is, and this brings us, this seems to bring us to this interaction is that there's a, a, a somewhat more fleshed out, tell me if I'm in that that's inaccurate, but a somewhat more fleshed out philosophical understanding or discourse on the role of emotions within the moral domain, the moral dimension of emotions. And we could think about, uh, and maybe we could talk a little bit about questions like empathy and the role of empathy in, in moral formation and so on. And it, so it strikes me that um, here we're, we're moving in that direction. So if we start off thinking about, well, we want to have true beliefs or, or epistemologies interested in how we form true beliefs, and then we move to um, the skills and abilities, the virtues that are associated with the formation of true beliefs. And then we start to think about, well, one, you know, the, uh, are we obligated to cultivate those skills and obligations? Or do we have a felt motivation to cultivate those skills and obligation or uh, skills and abilities? Um, and that takes us into the ethics of knowledge, which take, which then circle ba circles back away uh, into the kind of the moral dimension of emotion. So there, I think there's a couple of different pieces here that that strike me as interesting. So one is, can we think of uh, conflicts between, so one question this is, I, I'm curious what your view on this is, is there, can there be conflict between an ethics of knowledge and other moral obligations that we might have? Um, or is it kind of your view that, um, and it's a moral pluralism view, I suppose, a question about moral pluralism, can there be conflicts? Again, I'm just restating my question. Can there be conflicts between um, the ethics of knowledge and the, the obligations that we might have to form correct beliefs and other obligations that we might have? Um, generosity, 
or you know for example like when you you know thinking about your parents or your children or your friends so i'll make a somewhat more concrete say your 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 kid is playing the piano just to go back to the piano example um and the you know are you obligated to form kind of correct beliefs about the quality of the musicianship that you, of your of your child's performance you know or is your obligation as a parent to kind of look at them in a particular kind of light um and to be generous i suppose to their um you know to their accomplishments or whatever else that they're trying to do so that's the, I'm, what i'm trying to do is kind of set up a situation where i'm imagining that there could be some conflict between your kind of all things considered moral obligations and duties and uh, and so on versus your 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 ethical obligations towards uh, um, to, within the domain of knowledge and and holding correct beliefs. Ah yes, this is so good. <laughs> Thank you. I think that you are really pointing to powerful dilemmas that are not easy to 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 reply, and I think that our real life is full of this dilemma. So it is important to to consider them. So I can try to say something. I, I would say that, so it, it depends. I, I agree with the uh, philosophers that say that truth is the formal object of our inquiry of knowledge. So I stick with the truth. I'm not a postmodernist that say, oh, well, there are plural truths, blah, blah, blah. I think that the, the truth has a value. And yes, we, we, we can have scientific knowledge and we should strive for scientific knowledge, etc. But it depends because there are certain situations in which we can say, well, we are not striving for the truth, but we are striving for a better understanding. So maybe a better understanding of the motivation of my son or my daughter, why she wants to play the piano, why she now she doesn't want anymore. So here, understanding could be a very important intentional object of my processes of inquiry and knowledge, knowledge making. And someone can say, well, understanding is more important than the truth, because certain truths are also quite naive. For example, I don't know, maybe I want to know how many leaves are in the tree outside my windows. Boomer is not so important, right? right? So the importance is truths that are relevant to me, to the social dimension, but also that can nurture my understanding of the situation. So in this way, maybe we can find a more pluralistic view that is not so single oriented to the truth and became so fundamentalist, keeping the idea that the truth matter. But maybe in certain situation, it is not the uh, most important thing. But there are dilemmas, and I think that uh, re here really the assessment is quite context dependent because maybe we take another example. Should we always say the truth to a patient that right. has uh, right. a, a very a dead illness, a cancer in the third state, or, sh or should not? Here, th there are different uh, dimensions that we need to consider, not only the dimension of the truth, right? But there are also moral obligation or societal uh, obligation. Societal, I mean also the systemic dimension, maybe the, the sons, the, the wife or parents or, or wh whoever. So um, I, I would say that uh, 
you know, some philosophers say, well, the truth has an intrinsic value that we cannot deny. But there are situations in which we are not striving for the intrinsic value, but there are other instrumental value or values that are not really the, the direct point of reference of, of knowledge, but that are still very important. And in certain situations, we need to consider them and not the other. So I will say that I will keep a quite classical view about, yes, let's have the truth and the falsehood in mind, that we, we need to have them as orientation, but also having a pluralistic view in terms of the context, the different situation and the multi-layers of needs that can be in play in, in the situation in which understanding is more important than the truth. Yeah, this is all very super interesting. Is one, tell me if this is a, a, a fair characterization of, of what you were just saying there, is that, you know, there, truth is truth. There is such a thing. We can have correct beliefs and we can have not correct beliefs. So um, that's kind of one domain. But then we can ask about the value of truth in any particular context. And then we can have different, you know, that's a normative enterprise and we can have different normative frameworks for thinking about the value of knowing something, right? It, um, and there might be situations where knowing things can be very bad, actually. <laughs> like for example, if we could, if human beings just never came up with the idea to use, um, to build a nuclear bomb and we just never built that knowledge, we would know less about the world Right, we would know, but you know, a, a very serious risk that we face uh, would not exist, right? And so, um, you know, it's not that there's no such thing as how to build a bomb. That's obviously it can be built, um, and so there's a truth of the matter about about these things. But maybe we'd be better off if we had devoted our resources to something else rather than to producing that particular kind of knowledge. Um, is that is that a fair is that a fair characterization yes i would say that at the end of the day if i if i really have to to do an art choice and say is it better to know how it is or it is better to ignoring how to build the nuclear bomb mm -hmm. and if we need mm -hmm. to assess this in the full history and see all the situation that we had at the mm -hmm. end i would still say mm -hmm. that it's better knowledge than ignorance yeah. because i think yeah. that made the worst things than knowledge but that's still pragmatic not to interrupt but that's still a pragmatic judgment about kind of in it's a kind of a rule utilitarian in a way it's kind of like saying at, at a higher level we can say that knowledge is better than ignorance even if in any one instance perhaps it's not so much yeah i i i really try to take epistemology and ethics together. Although I know that there are so many dilemmas and conflicts uh, that uh, are in this connection. But I think that uh, the worst situation comes when we take knowledge uh, alone and in a truly, mm, you know, reductionist or rationalist way outside of the world. And I think, you know, there are some philosophers that say, ah, well, epistemology first, knowledge first, metaphysics first, ethics first. If I really should have to decide, I would say ethics first. I, I think that ethics comes first, but ethics also without knowledge 
ca cannot work. Maybe can't here, you know. <laughs> it is important that to say, yes, we need knowledge for ethics and ethics for knowledge. But for me, you, you say, yes, it's a quite a pragmatical assessment. For me, it's really um, also an ethical as assessment, right? Mm -hmm. So mm, what, what, what uh, at the end of the day is, is best for the humanity? But uh, I know that there are problems and I have many, many philosophers that disagree with me about that. <laughs> uh, well, that's the, right. That's the occupational hazard of being a philosopher is that you know of all the people that disagree with all, your, all of your views about everything. Um, so, so just to maybe switch gears a little bit, um, and I, I, and I want to move us in the direction of thinking a little bit about AI and some of these questions as well. But, but before we move to, to, to AI in particular, one question I had that came up a little bit, you mentioned social epistemology um, and something that's just kind of related in my, that just struck me as potentially related that I was curious about your views on or your thoughts on was um, kind of social emotion, the relationship between basically society and the society we're embedded in and our emotions. And you know the degree to which and on your view, emotions are universal human, characteristics, right, that we all experience fear, love, anxiety in the same way across cultures, or, um, you know, do you see emotions as being kind of deeply embedded in or deriving from our cultural conditions? And then does that tell us anything about the epistemic uh, importance of emotions? Because if we have all of, you know, all these different kinds of plurality of, of ex ways of experiencing emotions at the social level, does that mean that there's Going to be plurality in our epistemic frames, or uh, what are the what are the epistemic consequences of a kind of the uh, emotional plurality that we might see around the world? If you know we're, we don't think that there are many or um, all human emotions are kind of universal. So that's I guess the first question is whether you think human emotions are universal. Wow! Also, this is a great question. <laughs> yes, thank you. So, well, I can say that uh, mm, I share with. Uh, cultural theorists that uh, emotions are embedded in societies uh, so that are cultural dependent that there are strong differences uh, uh, in emotions experience among different cultures and also um, in the history in the development of, of the society so some emotion that can be experienced in the middle age maybe are not experienced anymore now and new emotional experience are experienced now and and, and not not in the past uh, so I, I share with uh, with them this this view, but I also think that there is a biological dimension that that is important. So I, I learned this from the pragmatist. Uh, so William James, Peirce, Mead, that they really try to to show uh, Dewey, of course, that uh, emotions and. Uh, also when they speak they spoke in terms of habits so affective habits so this regulated way of feeling something in certain situation are really at the border of uh, um, biology and our body and an environment and the cultural dimension and also the cultural heritage stage and the society and i think that this is very important also if we want then to speak uh, about the artificial intelligence and stuff so to keep uh, 
taking these two dimensions together, the biological and, and the cultural. And the second thing that I wanted to say in terms of the epistemology and say, well, so if we recognize that there is this plurality of emotions that are different in different culture and ages, etc. So are we really able to speak about epistemic emotions or emotions that bring us to the truth that maybe is one and not having this pluralistic view of the truth, right? And for replying to, to, to it, I'm working on the concept of epistemic cultures. So I have a, a paper that is now in peer review about, about it, where I say, well, I think that there is a problem understanding epistemic emotion in universal terms. So it, certain emotions can be epistemic if they are embedded in certain epistemic cultures. And for example, if we take a culture in which inquiry or co-inquiry is a, a value, is very well considered, well, then curiosity will be at, at the root of the skills uh, and abilities of the agent. But if we are in a vicious epistemic culture in which we esteem ignorance, self-denial, etc., maybe we will not find curiosity, right? And we will find other types of emotions. So in this regard, for me, it was important to show in the embeddedness of emotion in certain epistemic culture and also thinking about how to um, develop, build and sustain certain epistemic culture instead of others. Yeah. That's super interesting. So, I mean, just this might be a, uh, well, tell me if this is a fair application, um, like ambition. I don't know. Again, I'm not sure if ambition is a, uh, you know, personal ambition, the desire for status, whether that's a emotion or not, but it's a, it's a characteristic. It certainly has some emotional uh, element to it. And in the right epistemic situation, say, um, you know, particularly good kind of academic situation, right, where people are rewarded for doing good work and the peer review process works and so on, then personal ambition could actually work very well. Um, it could incline you to the production of knowledge, whereas there could be other societies or institutions, um, you know, just think of a, a you know, political, a highly ideological political party or something like that where your ability to move up in the party um, and achieve status is actually based on your ability to deny the facts in front of your face, right? And so status seeking and ambition in that institutional setup would be, you know, kind of directly opposed. It would be advice, actually. It would be, it would orient you against um, uh, being able to kind of grasp facts about the world. Um, is that is that uh, as a toy example of, of the of the of the context that you're describing? Does that does that work? Yes, it is perfect. It is really what uh, what I have in mind. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's... Yes, I can also say that uh, this. Uh, idea that emotions are embedded within uh, situations for me situation context and cultures and habits etc is also a way to reply to the question what are these strange things that we call emotions mm -hmm. that we say at the beginning mm -hmm. right so it's really focusing on on situated uh, experience and 
yes so maybe we do not need to come back to to that point but it's something that i'm really working working on for really challenging the idea that uh, emotions are something just universal or that are some private state of minds within mm -hmm. my brain but mm -hmm. they are very social cultural that they are in between biology and culture in between people and they are managed uh, and when i say that they are managed regulated etc we have the positive and the negative outcome of it as as you said in your example right so right. because can be managed for for the good in a positive institution so uh, yes i wanted to to write the best paper ever because i strive for the truth but can be also managed in very deceitful way and building uh, bad environments and 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 bad outcomes yeah and, no, yes. and today it seems this seems like a very you know in in especially i mean coming from the united states and concerns about fake news and our political process and all of that climate change and i mean these are really salient uh really uh, highly important uh issues Sh again shifting gears a little bit to talk about ai and and to see if uh, you know how well the, the 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 vocabulary that we've been putting on the table maps to or doesn't map to ai and does that tell us anything interesting about about humans or, or the potential of AI systems or downsides of AI systems. So, so one is, so you're familiar with AlphaGo, the, the chess playing algorithm de developed by DeepMind. And, you know, so the way Alpha, Alpha Zero uh, software works is it's self-taught, right? It's just kind of, it, it, the, the rules of Go in that case are, are taught to the uh, taught to the machine, and then the machine plays itself basically, um, got, you know, some astronomically large number of times, and then from all that self-play, trains a neural network that then uh, is capable of, of playing Go at, at essentially superhuman levels. Um, so one question is: Is AlphaGo motivated to learn how to play Go? Right. So you know, I might be motivated. To to learn to play Go, or we talked about playing the piano, right? If I love the piano, then you know it, there's an emotional connection that drives my interest in learning something. AlphaGo obviously doesn't experience emotions, um, and so its uh, motivation, quote unquote, motivation for uh, learning Go is just very different from the motivation that a human being might have. It maybe the word motivation isn't even the right word to use to describe what's going on with AlphaGo. So just just starting from that very you know kind of initial starting point of what drives the kind of action that ultimately results in learning maybe I, I, that would be a query for you is if you like the word learning as applied to an algorithm like AlphaGo um, so that's just to kind of get us started is is AlphaGo motivated in a, in a way that I, is that the right word to use is AlphaGo learning how to play um, go does it know how to play go after it's been trained um what do you think uh, about you know some of those questions so let me say these things i think that uh, for having a genuine learning process we need to face many mistakes and these mistakes or errors are made when we have to deal with uncertainties so when something unexpected uh, arises some some surprise when something is out of the out of the plot 
some problems that there are with uh, artificial intelligent system is that they are already uh, set to follow a specific path that is already given with all the possibilities. It's also a very, very complex situation. I don't want to say that it's just a, a stupid machine that just follow the rule in one direction, etc. because also for playing chess, you, you need to have the capacity of foreseeing alternatives, alternatives, moves, etc. But in certain situation, mm, there, there is no possibility of real uh, choice out of the box. And I think that learning needs this unpredictability. Uh, so I don't know, really, I don't know if now there are some engineers that are working on a different model of learning. We're not, we are not in the case in which all the possibilities are given, like uh, the, just the moving within these alternatives and probabilities, uh, etc. But working mm -hmm. more in a predictive model view. You know, there is this view, the predictive mind about uh, our human mm -hmm. brain that say that really our brain is a predictive machine engineer mm -hmm. that really learn learn from mistakes and re remake the predictions really working on using these surprises this uncertainty mm -hmm. andy clark also used this expression that i like very much surfing uncertainty so the mm -hmm. uncertainties are really uh, fundamental for this kind of uh, intelligence and learning. So I, I would be more happy to use the word learning for a machine that is able to do predictions in, in, in this way. If not, right. uh, I think that is not I think my, a I mean, deep I'm not an expert on this at all, but my understanding is that a, a program like AlphaZero, especially that learns through self-play, it's a reinforce, it's called a reinforcement learning kind of situation where it literally plays against itself, right? The way that you could play chess against yourself and then um, learns by making mistakes and essentially playing bad moves and seeing how those bad moves work over time, um, uh, updating predictions based on like, you know, kind of what the consequences of some moves will be for subsequent board positions and the like. So it's, it sounds that on your definition, you would be relatively comfortable applying it the term learning to something like so, that. So, because you started to say motivation, because if we can have this kind of learning, I think that there is a kind of motivation there. And the motivation is really the one of make better prediction. And mm -hmm. so, remodulate your prediction, learning from failures, failures, mistakes, or uh, misprediction in order to improve your ways uh, of dealing with, with the situation. Uh, mm, then we can say, well, what kind of motivation is there? Is not, it maybe it's not an affective or an emotional one, as the ones that we, we, discussed, uh, we discussed before. And I have uh, um, a lot of problem with this because uh, I think that uh, the mainstream until now was to use a simulation theory of, of, of emotions in, 
in really designing artificial intelligence and, and robots. But uh, simulation, as the word say, is not uh, the uh, authentic emotion, right? You just simulate yes. behavior, the affective behavior, the emotional behavior, but mm -hmm. uh, you do not really feel what, what is going on. And then someone say, ah, okay, but maybe the simulation is enough. We do not need more. Why should we need to have mm -hmm. also a robot that feel and I think that this is an important question when we think in terms of social robots or K-robots. Could we really accept to have K-robots that do not feel? What kind of care are we going to have? Yes, maybe an efficient one where there are some behaviors that are displayed that uh, feel like for the agent the, the biological one, but are not the um, the authentic one. And I think that there are strong implications to the selfhood and self-identity as well, because then humans can start to learn from this kind of simulated emotions. And that is not necessary to really, to really feel the, the things. But uh, before we were speaking that emotion has this power of boosting responsibility, kindling interest, etc. I think that just a simulated emotion has not this power, are quite uh, weak and feeble. So we will miss many important things if we, we use to this kind of emotion. So my concerns maybe are more for the implication to human psychology of having to do with emotions that are just simulated. But I know that there are uh, scholars, engineers, scientists that are working on uh, uh, trying to have a more embodied experience also for, for robots. And these avenues are so interesting to me and I'm very curious to see what will be produced in the next years. What will come out of that? Yeah. I and mean, I think one of, the, one of the questions I think that's it's kind of related to this is and gets us into and maybe kind of like the big questions about AI and over the long term and so whether we have to worry about AI and that kind of thing is the relationship of that we, we've been unpacking a little bit between kind of motivation, the sources of motivation, the emotional um, sources of our motivations or the, or the relationship of those things with the ethics of knowledge, for example. So um, I'm not motivated to go out and count the leaves on trees, right? Because it's not important to me. It kind of feels like a waste of my time That'd be very boring. Um, you know, Alpha Zero uh, plays, I don't know, billions or trillions of Go games. I, I'm not motivated to do that either. No human being is actually motivated enough to do that, right? Um, to spend, you know, a thousand lifetimes just playing Go. Um, and, you know, so, so, so in a way, it's almost as though, but I could, and I could also easily, you know, or somebody that knows how to program better than I do could make an algorithm that counts leaves on trees. Absolutely. So in a sense, you know, some of these AI learners are hyper motivated, right? Like I have to, I have to have, you know, some emotional effective relationship to the thing that I'm trying to learn about in order to maintain my motivation, right? Whereas, you know, I, I, a machine can just, it just comes motivated, right? You just say, go do this. And it just does it forever. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be internally motivated. Um, and I wonder if that's like a risk of some of these AI systems in a way is that um, it's a power because they can be, they have this motivation and they can just 
go learn something to an incredible nth degree. Um, but at the same time, they could learn dangerous things or they could do dangerous things with that knowledge, right? That they, they lack that, you know, the kind of the ethics side, right? On, on the other hand, if I was learning to do evil things, I wouldn't be interested in learning how to, I'm not interested in learning how to do evil things, but an AI will gladly learn how to do evil things because it just doesn't care. We'll count leaves on trees. We'll do whatever you want to do with it. So, so in any case, I was curious about uh, if you see any um, interesting um, possibilities there of thinking about the kind of the, the, the emotions as they relate to motivation, emotions as they relate to ethics of knowledge, and um, and how this works with AI systems. Yes, yes, it is very interesting because your example and say, ah, oh, well, at some point maybe I can be, and it is also <laughs> a good choice of not being motivated to play in Go, learning to play Go for thousands of years. I, I'm able to decide to make a choice that it is not worthwhile, that is better that I do other things. But if a machine is programmed to just uh, be the best Go player, it or she or he, we need to decide which pronouns to use in this case. Uh, we just keep learning until, until the end, until uh, uh, it will uh, get to, to, to achieving the, the, the goal that is programmed for. And I think that here we, we can see an important difference between uh, humans and uh, artificial intelligence systems or, or agents. That is the one of self-criticism or self-assessment that are at the ground of, in your example, making the choice to say, ah, well, it is not worthwhile learning to to play to play go uh, at the end and this of course brings to the hot question of subjectivity or consciousness of of these of these machines but uh, i i think that uh, we also do not need to to go too far and we can also think this in a purely functionalist way and, and think if machines can have uh, a function that make them self-revision, assessment of what they are doing, and this make them change maybe the path that they have been programmed for. Maybe doing an assessment of the risks of the situation, if the conditions are changed, etc. And But I think that uh, self-criticism is a fundamental uh, function of human intelligence. And without this, as I said in the case of learning, I think that uh, is quite vague the word intelligence uh, as it is ascribed to, to other systems. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. So, well, thanks so much for uh, dedicating uh, so much time of your day to this conversation. I, it's been uh, super interesting. I've learned a lot, so I really appreciate um, you taking the time to, to chat. Oh, today. thank you, Mike. I enjoyed it very, very much. And also, I have new things to, to think about now, especially the dilemmas that you proposed to me about the epistemology and the ethics of knowledge. And yes, we will speak about it another time, I hope. <laughs> Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks very much.